Today we will be reading 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Leviticus. We're going to be reading um, two chapters today. I'll explain more about how we're going to read those two chapters in just a minute, but you can begin on page 96, uh, if you're using the few Bibles in front of you, page 96, as we kick it off with um, chapter 18. The instructions that we're going to be reading today and hearing from are instructions from God about uh, about holy households. Uh, So again, we're going to be hearing from God about holy households. And as we jump into that, I want to begin with a story about confidence. Uh, Several weeks ago, our our family watched through the most recent season of Iron Chef. Uh, It's a classic TV show. Hopefully many of you have seen the TV show Iron Chef. Uh, If you haven't, it's a TV show that pits uh, famous chefs, professional chefs, against each other as they have to prepare these, these luxury gourmet meals in a very, very narrow window of time. That's the, that's the whole thing. Professional chefs cooking luxury foods in a tight window of time. One of the episodes that we watched had a, a, a chef and his entire team of, of two, I think. It was the chef plus two other sous chefs. They had to prepare, butcher and prepare, an entire animal and turn it into four courses in one hour. And they did it because they're amazing, right? Uh, But the thing that really stuck out to me wasn't just the fact that they accomplished the task, it was how they presented the food. When the Iron Chef came forward to present the food to the judges, he, he said, we looked forward to this challenge because it gave us a chance to showcase something that we're known for. Apparently, they were used to butchering and processing entire animals to turn it into luxury gourmet meals. So again, we looked forward to this challenge because it gave us a chance to showcase something we're known for. Now, what does that have to do with Leviticus 18 and 20? Leviticus 18 and 20 are chapters that tend to make people nervous, right? These chapters give specific instructions about godly sexuality, godly family relationships, and godly worship. And these specific instructions are challenging instructions. And they're challenging to us not because the grammar in the text is really hard to understand, but because the moral standard is difficult to follow. And it's a moral standard that the culture around us tends to find offensive. This comes as no shock to any of you sitting in this room. We live in a hypersexual culture that celebrates things that God explicitly finds fault with 
especially in this month. And so we, as Christians, may feel a little bit of trepidation as we enter into the public sphere. We ask questions. What am I supposed to do if someone confronts me with their different practices and their different perspectives? What am I supposed to believe about sexuality? What does faithfulness in practice actually look like? What are households for anyway? These are familiar questions to us. And the good news is that these are familiar questions to Christians throughout the world and throughout history. The early church asked these identical questions as they lived in the midst of the hypersexual Roman Empire, and the Israelites asked them in ancient times because the Israelites lived amongst hypersexual cultures that celebrated things that God explicitly found fault with. So the Israelites would feel trepidation. What are we supposed to do if someone confronts us with their different practices and perspectives? What are we supposed to believe about sexuality? What does faithfulness in practice actually look like? What are households for anyway? Again, these are challenging questions, but we don't need to be afraid of them. We don't need to be afraid of Leviticus chapter 18 or chapter 20. We don't need to be afraid of these challenging interactions with our neighbors or our culture. We can look forward to these challenges because they give us a chance to showcase something that we're known for, or at least something that we can be known for. Godly, gracious households built on God's word. At the end of the day, Leviticus 18 and 20, these two chapters are a gift to the church. In the midst of disorder and confusion and cultural pressure, we need a clear word from God, right? And thankfully, mercifully, God speaks. God gives us that clear word, and the message that he gives to us in these two chapters is relevant to every Christian community that has ever existed. Households are for God. Households are for God. They showcase God's glory to the world, so keep your households holy. That's the message of the text today. Keep your households holy. And I invite you to keep that in mind as we make our way through these two chapters. We're going to be looking at 18 and 20 together. There's a lot of thematic overlap between the two, which is why we're going to study them all in one Sunday. Chapter 18 gives God's righteous prohibitions. And then chapter 20 tells us what happens when God's righteous prohibitions are broken. So these two really belong together. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read some of the passage before us, and then I'm going to summarize the rest. And that's how we're going to be able to make our way through chapter 18 and 20. Now, brothers and sisters, let's turn our attention to God's gracious, holy word for his people, beginning in chapter 18. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. 
You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another home. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your son's daughter or of your daughter's daughter, for, that, for their nakedness is your own nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter, brought up in your father's family, since she is your sister. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister. She is your father's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, for she is your mother's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. That is, you shall not approach his wife. She is your aunt. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and of her daughter, and you shall not take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are relatives. It is depravity. And you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. And you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife and so make yourself unclean with her. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And you shall not lie with any animal, and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. And then in verses 24 through the end of the chapter, God reminds the people of his righteous judgments upon the nations. He just driving out the Canaanites before the people of Israel because they practiced these very things. And then we'll flip over to chapter 20. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to the people of Israel, any of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who gives any of his children to Molech, shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people, because he has given one of his children to Molech to make my sanctuary unclean, and to profane my holy name. And if the people of the land do at all close their eyes to that man when he gives one of his children to Molech, and do not put him to death, then I will set my face against that man and against his clan, 
and will cut them off from among their people, him and all who follow him in whoring after Molech. If a person turns to mediums and necromancers, whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. For anyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood is upon them. Then in verses 10 through 21, we hear further uh, judgments on people who then continue to break God's statutes, in particular, uh, who break God's rules for sexual purity. And there are a couple of punishments that we hear about in those two, or in those several verses, being cut off from the people, being put to death, and uh, being childless, which either might be barrenness or simply having your adult children turn on you and forsake you and the ways of the Lord later on. And now we can pick up back in chapter, in chapter 20, verse 22. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nations that I am driving out before you, for they did all these things and therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, You shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean, and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast, or by bird, or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me. For I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. A man or a woman who is a medium or a necromancer shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, in these two chapters, again, we do hear things that, that make us nervous. Uh, we hear things that, that we, uh, we, again, see celebrated in our culture. But more than that, we, we see temptations to in our own lives. We recognize the ways in which we are unfaithful to you in so many ways. And so we ask now, Lord, that you would speak to us from your unchanging word, a message of grace and truth, and holiness. Through your spirit, would you impress your word upon our hearts? Through your spirit, would you speak to us so that we would hear your voice now? Give us grace, give us confidence in this text, in your word, and in your gospel. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. So in that reading, you've just heard a lot of laws, right? You've heard a lot of laws, but I want to tell you that this is not just a random collection of laws uh, that someone a long time ago kind of smashed together into these two chapters. God, in these two chapters, presents his people with a united message, keep your households holy. That's the message of these two chapters, keep your households 
holy. And for us to unpack that, we're going to ask four questions of the text this morning. Four questions as we learn from God how to keep our households holy. First, the first question for us this morning, what do these laws teach? What do these laws teach? These laws teach that households belong to God. And because households belong to God, everything that builds a household must be holy. Let me say that again. What do these laws teach? These laws teach that households belong to God. And because households belong to God, everything that builds a household must be kept holy. Let's take a trip back in time to uh, picture what an ancient Israelite household would look like. It's a tribal culture. So families are very close and they live in close proximity to one another. A single household, one household would include the father and the mother and their adult children and their spouses and their grandchildren all living together in one big tent, one huge fabric pavilion. Uh, And then right next door would be another big fabric pavilion that would be full of all your relatives and your extended family. And then next to them, there would be more people in your clan. And that was the neighborhood. Uh, The neighborhoods were all built out of these big old households living together in community. And according to these laws, every single one of those households belonged to God. Chapter 20, verse 26, you shall be holy to me for I, the Lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Now, remember, in our study of Leviticus, holiness means belonging to God. If you're holy, you belong to God in a a special, intimate way. The people are gods. The households are gods. They belong to God. And so everything that builds the household must belong to God, too. Everything must be holy. Imagine going into a Jewish deli and asking for a kosher sandwich, okay? If you're gonna get a kosher sandwich, every single ingredient in that sandwich needs to be kosher. The second that one unkosher element goes into that sandwich, the whole thing becomes unkosher. So kosher ingredients build kosher sandwiches, and holy practices build holy households. Holy practices build holy households. And so, sexual relationships needed to be holy as part of one of the things that builds a holy household. Sexual relationships need to be holy. God does not want his people having marital intimacy whenever and with whomever they want. We hear lots of laws regulating that. Incest, marital relations with any close relative or the spouse of any close relative is prohibited. Chapter 18, verse 6, none of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. And the bulk of those rules deals with what those close relatives are in uh, the, the list of a family tree. Uh, also, uh, polygamy, having multiple wives is prohibited. 
chapter 18, verse 18, you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. This is telling the men of the people of Israel, do not take more than one wife. Uh, Also, marital intimacy during times of ceremonial uncleanliness is prohibited. We heard that in chapter 18, verse 19. And then God says at the close of all of these laws that any other illicit sexual activity outside of marriage between one man and one woman is prohibited. And God says that very clearly in chapter 18, verses 22 and 23, and in the verses that I didn't read in chapter 20, he repeats that same exact thing. And so the rationale for all of this, all of these sexual rules, is simply this. I am the Lord. You hear that repeated again and again in this passage. I am the Lord. I am the Lord your God. God is saying, I have covenanted myself to you. I have betrothed myself to you. You belong to me in a special, intimate way. And therefore, your sexual relationships in the camp must be holy. But there's more to a household than sex. Family relationships need to be holy. Family relationships needed to be holy. Chapter 18, verse 21. Parents were forbidden to offer their children as sacrifices to the pagan Canaanite god Molech. In, or, in other words, the child sacrifice is off the table. And unfortunately, we have uh, archaeological records of child sacrifice taking place in Canaan. So this isn't just some made-up prohibition. These things happened. Parents are not to give their children through death to a pagan god of death and destruction. Instead, they are to give their children to the Lord through circumcision, dedicating them to God and teaching them how to grow in the faith through faithful nurture. Uh, That's how parents are to treat their kids. Or chapter 20, verse 9, adults, uh, adult children in this particular instance were forbidden to curse their parents. Instead, children of all ages were commanded to respect their parents, to bless them and not curse them. This applied to extended family relationships as well. 1815, fathers were forbidden from pursuing their daughters-in-law. Instead, fathers were to protect their daughters-in-law. They were to treat them as their own daughters. And again, the rationale for all of these family relationships is, I am the Lord. I am the Lord, therefore honor each other, respect each other, protect each other, love each other. Family relationships needed to be holy. And finally, household worship needs to be holy. Household worship needs to be holy. Multiple times in these chapters, God says, do not participate in pagan worship. Have nothing to do with Molech. Have nothing to do with mediums and necromancers, these people who tried to give spiritual revelation or spiritual advice through pagan practices. Instead, worship God alone. Depend on God alone. Chapter 20, verses 7 and 8. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, be separate and distinct. Belong to God. 
Be holy, for I, the Lord, am your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you and no other. So don't depend on other deities. Don't go out and do pagan worship. Depend on God alone. Households are for God. They are meant to be holy, and holy households are built on holy practices. This is a very countercultural statement, and God knows that it's a very countercultural statement because at least eight times in these two chapters, God says, Don't be like the nations. It's, he knows it's a countercultural command. Don't be like the Egyptians, these people that you're coming out from. Don't be like the Canaanites, the people that you're going to go live amongst and live in their land. Don't be like the surrounding nations. It's countercultural to give our households to God. It's always been countercultural, countercultural then, countercultural now. In our society, sex is for personal gratification. And families are for personal happiness and personal advancements. And religious practices are simply a matter of personal choice. But God says, your households are for me. Your households are for me. Therefore, keep your households holy through holy sexual practices, through holy family relationships, and through holy household worship. And that leads us to the second question for us this morning. Why does God care? Why does God care? According to our society, no one other than me gets to tell me what to do with my body or how to structure my family. And in these matters, like we've talked about before in previous sermons, most people think that the matters that we've just talked about are personal, private, and seemingly inconsequential things. So why does God care? Here's why God cares. God cares because we are meant to image God. We are meant to image God to the watching world. Our bodies and our households are mirrors of God's character. And if we misuse them, then we project a warped image of God to the world. That's what God means in chapter 18, 21, or in chapter 20, verse 3, that unfaithful practices profane his name. Our actions profane his name by reflecting badly on his character. Our actions should instead reflect his character as it really is. So let's imagine what a holy household would have looked like if all of these rules were practiced. What would it look like? The basic marital unit would be a man and a woman from different families, respecting God's creational design, living in purity and in love. And that purity and love would then radiate out through their extended relationships through the rest of the entire household. And so, instead of exploiting the most vulnerable, the children the in-laws who had left the safety of their own household to come and live in this new family, the aged, 
The people who stand to suffer, these are the most vulnerable people in that society. And in a godly household, instead of exploiting those people, holy households protected them. Holy households honored them. Instead of wrecking family trust or neighborhood trust, holy households respected the integrity of other marriages, of other people. Instead of introducing rivalries and jealousy and envy through multiple marriages, holy households delighted in their one spouse. Instead of engaging in destructive pagan practices, holy households served the Lord. So picture that for a minute. What does a holy household look like? I think according to the text, a holy household was a beautiful thing. It was a place of harmony, a place of peace and righteousness and justice and mercy and holiness. This beautiful household would be a living picture of God because God is like that. But contrasted to that, disordered, unholy households were were exactly the opposite. And that's why God describes all of the sinful behaviors in this text in very strong language. He, ca- he calls them depravity, abominations, perversions, profane things, broken, twisted, warped practices that obscured his character to a watching world that needs to see him as he really is. That's why God cares. He wants the nations around to see his glory and repent. God wants hypersexual societies to turn to him and to be saved. There is a missional heartbeat here in the text. God cares because he wants to show the world his glory. That's not hateful, and it's not shameful. This text is not a a shaming passage. I think this text is actually refreshingly honest about the nature of temptation. When it comes to sexuality, our culture basically says there's no such thing as temptation. Just be who you are. But on the other hand, I think a lot of Christians who, especially if you've grown up in the church, uh, we feel a lot of fear. We kind of get freaked out about temptation. Uh, Temptations rise up in our hearts and we say, oh no, I can't believe I'm tempted by that. What does it say about me? Uh, What kind of person am I to be tempted by that? We tend to be very caught off guard and ashamed of our temptations. But in this text, God uh, assumes that his people are going to be tempted by all kinds of things. Uh, He assumes, he knows that all sorts of temptations are going to assail his people. And so the answer to temptation is not surprise or shock or shame. The answer to temptation is simply resistance. Don't give in. Fight against the temptations that you find because, and here's where God is most wise to us, God knows that the more accepted a practice is, 
the more attractive it becomes, right? The more accepted a practice is in a household, a family, a society, the more attractive it becomes and the more people will engage in that practice that God had previously said not to do. And before you know it, whole societies have forsaken God's ways, which means, missionally speaking, that the world is left without a witness to God's grace. And so God again says, keep your households holy. These laws are gifts. They are not mean. They are merciful. And they're not outdated. And that leads to the third question, why should we care? Why should we care? You've probably heard that question before. These laws are ancient. They were given to a people wandering in the wilderness well before our modern scientific discoveries or advancements. Also, things have changed. We don't make sacrifices anymore. We don't avoid eating pigs anymore. We, uh, many of us happily eat things that the Old Testament said not to eat. We don't stone people for working on Sundays anymore. Uh, why should we care about these laws? When I was preparing to preach through Leviticus, a friend actually asked me that. He said, uh, how are you going to handle those outdated pieces, meaning this? Uh, and I, I just told him that all of Leviticus shows us God's plan for salvation. Uh, from start to finish, Leviticus shows us a God who makes a way for his people to enjoy his presence through atoning sacrifice and then that same God calls his people to live lives of holiness based on his grace. None of that has changed. Sure, we don't live in a theocracy anymore, so the ways of enforcing holiness have changed, but the call to holiness is exactly the same. And the New Testament bears that out. Just ask yourself, how does the New Testament treat Leviticus's food laws? Well, the New Testament says that Christ's sacrifice on the cross replaces the food laws of the Old Testament. But ask yourself this, how does the New Testament treat Leviticus's sexual ethic? How does the New Testament treat Leviticus's sexual ethic? It upholds it. It, it upholds it and continues to apply it to the New Testament church. We heard 1 Corinthians 6 earlier, Paul's call to righteous living. And the first four practices in that list are from Leviticus 18. Uh, or we might think about Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. That sounds like Leviticus 18 and 20. The New Testament writers clearly think that Leviticus 18 and 20 are still relevant for our lives, and so does Jesus. Jesus does not set aside the Old Testament sexual ethic. In fact, he intensifies it. According to Jesus, sexual purity is not merely about our outward actions. It's about our internal intent. Jesus deepens our commitment to sexual, familial, and spiritual integrity, and that's why we should care. The moral teaching of Leviticus 18 and 20 has not changed. 
And so our actions carry significant spiritual consequences. Sin brings judgment. You hear it in the Old Testament. You hear it in the New Testament. It's all through these verses being cut off, having God's face turned away, being vomited out of the land, being cast out from God's presence in this life and in the life to come. There are real consequences for our sin. Sin brings judgment, but faithfulness brings blessing. Faithfulness brings blessing. Listen to a few verses, 18, 5. You shall keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. He shall find life by God's statutes and instructions. Chapter 20, verse 24. I have said to you, you shall inherit their land. I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 26, you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Just picture that. God is promising his people a long, robust, joyful life in a beautiful land, abundant in nourishment and sweet delights with God himself in their midst. These are the blessings that come from faithfulness. This isn't salvation by works. These people were saved already. Electing love had already come upon them before they were given these instructions. Grace came before law, but God says, keep these laws so that you can continue to enjoy my presence, so you can continue to enjoy my blessings. Friends, Sexual faithfulness, relational faithfulness, spiritual faithfulness brings blessing. They bring blessing to us. Of course, that doesn't mean that it's always easy. I think all of us could testify to that. The call to faithfulness is simultaneously a call to self-denial. And self-denial is always hard, especially when you live in a culture that proclaims you only live once and why can't I? So we need to take the eternal perspective here. We need to think about these laws in our eternal relationship with Christ. Sin brings judgment in this life and in the life to come, but faithfulness brings blessing. Faithfulness brings intimacy with God now and forever. That's why we should care. And that leads to the final question this morning. How should we respond? How should we respond? This text calls for two responses. First, a personal commitment to faithfulness. A personal commitment commitment to faithfulness. It's interesting, throughout most of Leviticus, and you know this, throughout most of the Bible, when God says the word you, Y-O-U, it's usually plural, like y'all, y'all be holy. But actually, in Leviticus 18, most of the yous are singular. Like verse 7, 
you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father. Or verse 18, you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to your sister. Or verse 21, you shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech. Verse 22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. All of these are singular. God is slowing down the pace and looking everyone in the eye and saying, you. He's speaking to every single one of us here. You, personally, be faithful. Commit yourself to faithfulness. Honor God's design for marital intimacy. Protect the vulnerable from exploitation. Refuse to objectify them, men and women around you. Train your kids in godliness. Respect your parents. Depend on God alone for your flourishing. Keep your households holy. And through doing that, you will also keep the church, the household of God, holy. But that's a high moral standard. And at some point... Every single one of us is going to fall short. And that leads to the second response, repentance. This text calls us to repentance. Rebecca McLaughlin is a Christian apologist who has been open about her own struggles with same-sex attraction. And she writes this, The fact is that all of us will likely sometimes be attracted to people we're not married to. This is true, whether you're attracted to the same sex or the opposite sex, and it's true whether you're single or married. If we're followers of Jesus, we'll need help when these feelings arise. We'll also need assurance of God's forgiveness if we fail big time. That's where Jesus comes in. And what good news for us, Jesus died on the cross to save sinners, people who have messed up in all of these various ways that we're talking about. Through his atoning blood, Jesus has wiped us clean from all of our guilt. And he has removed all of our shame. And he gives us new hearts so that we can more readily resist temptation and fight against sin through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so if you are struggling with sexual holiness or familial holiness or spiritual holiness, turn to Christ and ask for forgiveness. Repentance brings freedom from guilt and shame. And repentance keeps us humble in a culture that views us with suspicion. Our culture celebrates things that God explicitly finds fault with, and our culture thinks that we and this message would be judgmental and hypocritical. And so how can we gain a hearing in the public sphere? The only way is going to be through humility. Repentance that accompanies faithfulness, honesty about God's righteous and beautiful commands and honesty about our own failings. Because the world does not need more self-righteous perfectionists. 
The world needs Jesus and holy households, households that are committed to faithfulness coupled with repentance. Holy households display Jesus to the watching world. And so keep your household holy. It may not win the day. It may not win the hearts and minds of your neighbors, but do it anyway. You can embrace these very real challenges with confidence in Christ. These challenges give us the chance to showcase something that we can be known for. Godly, gracious, holy households. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this challenging text, the challenge that it presents in our own lives, most importantly to our own hearts, and also the challenge that it puts us in in a world that doesn't agree. And so we thank you for your righteous rules. They are lovely. They are beautiful. They are pure. They are true. And I pray that you would conform our hearts to them, conform our households to them, conform our lives to them, and conform this church as one of the households of God, conform this place to your ways so that we would experience life and blessedness and tenderness with you. Bring us close to you through these rules and through our attempts at faithfulness and through our repentance. Bring us to yourself through Christ. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.